This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by the all-new Jeep Wrangler, giving you the freedom to pursue adventures. Like former pro surfer John Rose. Anybody who's a professional athlete, there's an arc, you know, there's a shelf life. For me, I was a pro surfer. I was never the best, but I carved my own niche out and I did it for 13 years. It was everything to me. In 2009, John went to Indonesia on a surf trip right when it got hit by a magnitude 7.6 earthquake. And I became sort of a first responder by accident. One month later was Haiti, the big catastrophic earthquake in January 2010. I thought I was going for two weeks, I stayed for two years. So that was the inception of Waves for Water. Waves for Water is an aid organization that helps provide clean water in more than 40 countries. We have one sole purpose, provide access to clean drinking water for developing communities. Not just developing communities, but recovering communities too. For the last eight years, whenever a disaster strikes that threatens drinking water, like an earthquake, tsunami, or hurricane, John and his team show up with suitcases full of water filters. In the first three weeks after Hurricane Maria devastated Puerto Rico, he set up 3,600 filtration stations and got clean water to 100,000 people. Thinking about that trajectory was it was so fast. I mean, I, I bought 10 filters my own money, went to Indonesia, and three months later in Haiti, somebody offered me $40,000 to do as much as I could with that. It was not going to be my job. It was going to be a pet project, and then it blossomed. These days, with a team in place running waves for water, John is looking for the next challenge, the next adventure. And Jeep is helping him get there. Find out more at jeep.com wrangler. From Outside Magazine and PRX, these are Dispatches, stories from our writers in the field. I can remember exactly where I was when I heard that militia members had taken over Malheur National Wildlife Refuge in Oregon, where I live. I was in New York for a wedding, and I wasn't going to be home anytime soon. And so I kind of watched what happened and skimmed the news, but this was the work of the Bundy family and I had read about their standoff with the federal government in 2014 in Nevada. And so I had the sense of, here we go again. I know this story. Well, for the last few months, I've been doing some editing and production work on a podcast series about the Bundy family for longreads.com. And it's staggering how deeply I did not know that story and what it would become. No one did. Not even the Bundys, really. The story of the Bundys is a major chapter in the evolution of the American West, Because they took on the federal government and won. Twice. And the consequences of those victories have led us to the present moment. Right now, the Trump administration is testing the Antiquities Act, trying to shrink national monuments created by President Obama, something no administration has ever done before. In fact, there's almost an anti-public lands movement gaining momentum in the administration right now. And that's going to affect everyone who uses the backcountry. But in order to understand what's going on and how we got here, you have to understand the Bundys. Who they are, where they came from, what they're doing to the American West. For the last two years, reporter Leah Satilli has been trying to figure that out. She wrote a four-part print series for Longreads. And then my co-producer, Robbie Carver, and I have been helping Longreads and Oregon Public Broadcasting create a seven-part podcast series called Bundyville, which launches today, all seven episodes. If you like this show, you're going to like Bundyville. So we're going to play the first episode in the series here. You can find the rest by searching Bundyville in your podcast app. Here's Leah. 
By his own account, Nevada rancher Cliven Bundy never wanted to start a war with the federal government. He says that if they'd just left him alone out here in the desert, none of this would have ever started. And if you want to see him as the folksy hero of a modern-day Western, you can choose to see him that way. Here's a good starting point. It's a random YouTube video, and it shows a blonde-haired little boy, a toddler. He's wearing a dusty red polo shirt, blue jeans. He lays stunned in the dirt, having just been knocked down, and he's considering whether or not he wants to cry. Can I help you up? Oh, I hope that leg's not broke. The boy shakes off his cowboy hat wearing grandpa and putters away. That's what life's all about, raising cowboys. <laughs> he's tough. See how tough he is? He got run over by a horse and he's out there going already. Yeah. Nothing to it, he says. The toddler looks back at his grandpa. He points to the west and the camera follows. A patch of bright green grass comes into view against the Nevada desert. It's the color of life. It stands out in a place where everything else looks dead. This land is our land. This land is a free land. This land is a place that we can enjoy and use. That's Cliven Bundy as he'd like to be seen. The peaceful farmer, homesteading on his 160-acre ranch near Bunkerville, Nevada, raising 14 kids to help him out on the farm. But in 2014, just a few weeks after this video was shot, on the same piece of land, Cliven Bundy and his sons were anything but peaceful. Tensions reached the boiling point earlier this week. Get out of here, you coward! They'd raised a militia that was pointing guns at federal agents of what the Bundys called a tyrannical government. Why the gun? Well, they have guns. We need guns to protect ourselves from a tyrannical government. Here's Cliven on stage in Bunkerville, whipping the crowd into a frenzy demanding that the local sheriff bulldoze the buildings at a nearby national park so that the surrounding community might have free reign of the land. You take down the, you get the county. He says, get the county equipment out there and tear those things down this morning. The sheriff just stands quietly on stage. He's got his thumbs hitched in his belt, and the mob heckles him. Do your job, sheriff! Bundy has more demands. We want those arms delivered right He says the sheriff also has to disarm the Park Service Rangers. Bring me those guns in one hour, he says, or else. If they're not done, then we'll decide what we're going to do from this point on. Depending on how you look at the way this is all played out, Cliven Bundy is either a prophet who's leading his people to salvation or a cult leader who's led his followers straight to jail, even death. And how you see Cliven may say just as much about you as it does about the Bundys. From Long Reads and Oregon Public Broadcasting, this is Bundyville, a seven-part series about the Bundy family and how they're changing the American West. I'm Leah Satilli. And in 2016, I set out to write a single breaking news story about the Bundys. But one story turned into several. Because every time I learned something new, it would just bring up more questions. Things that seemed unbelievable would turn out to be real. Even when I wasn't writing, I couldn't stop finding new pieces in this really complicated puzzle. Most people know roughly what happened in Nevada and Oregon. If not, 
This first episode is going to bring you up to speed. And then we're going to dive into all the weird stuff that didn't make it on the nightly news. And the things that have only come to light months and years after most people stopped paying attention. And a lot of people say we should stop paying attention to the Bundys. And that may have been true. Until recently. Because the Bundy story is bigger and stranger than I expected. Forget about facts and laws. More than anything else, the story of the Bundys is about belief and truth and figuring out which one of those things has more power. If you believe the Bundys, then you believe the federal government is trying to enslave the American people. If you believe the feds, then you believe a remote cattle rancher is a domestic terrorist. So, do the Bundys own the truth? Or is that the property of the U.S. government? That's what I set out to find. Let's think for a second about all the things in history that have started armed revolts against a government. Food shortages, dictatorships, widespread corruption. Where do reptiles fit on that list? For Cliven, right at the top. Here's Aaron Weiss from the conservation advocacy group, the Center for Western Priorities. You know, the, the whole reason that Cliven Bundy has been breaking the law and running his cows illegally is because his cows uh, posed a danger to the desert tortoise. It was an endangered species problem to begin with. In the early 1990s, populations of desert tortoise were plummeting in the American Southwest. The tortoises have been around for 15 to 20 million years in the desert, but they compete with cattle for what little grass there is to eat out there. And the cattle usually win. In the 90s, that landed the tortoise on the endangered species list. It's a common story in the West. An endangered species is threatened by ranching or logging or mining. Regulators and environmentalists step in to preserve the animal. The groups go to court and fight over this one central question. Are the wide open spaces in the West meant to support rural communities or should they be kept pristine? Historically, the people working the land have had to back off, give up resources and old ways of life, change with the times, But at a certain point, the Bundys decided they just weren't going to change. They were done with federal rules. We run cattle here, graze this natural resource off this public land, and I abide by all of Nevada state law. But I don't recognize the United States government as as even existing. Since 1948, the Bundys have been growing melons and raising cattle on their 160 acres. And for decades, the family also paid the federal government for a grazing permit so they could legally ranch on the public land that surrounds the property. For Nevada ranchers, the tortoise listing meant three fewer months each year that they could graze their herds. But Cliven Bundy? In 1993, he started simply ignoring the ruling and kept his cows on the land. You should know that the rates ranchers pay for grazing are like a dollar per cow each month. Ranchers buy the permits because land is expensive, and the majority of land in the West is actually federally owned. But Aaron Weiss says that's one of the things that's up for debate in the eyes of the Bundys, whether or not grazing your cattle on a piece of public land gives you any rights to that property. 
Clive and Bundy believes he is grazing his cows on his land, and he's going to claim it's not federal government land, it's actually county land, uh, but it's not. Ranchers in Clark County, Nevada, were eventually offered buyouts for their grazing permits to help save the desert tortoise. Nearly all of them took the money, and their permits were retired. Everyone except Clive and Bundy. For more than 20 years, Bundy fought in and out of court with the Federal Bureau of Land Management. You'll hear about the BLM a lot in this podcast. It's the agency that President Truman created after World War II to manage millions of acres owned by the U.S. government, most of it in western states. But Bundy said that was unconstitutional. If you're around the Bundys and their supporters for any amount of time, they'll hand you a pocket-sized copy of the Constitution, and they'll tell you about their favorite part. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17. All right, let me read that clause to you. Again, this is Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17. Now, it starts out that says, Congress shall have power to... Legal scholars call it the Enclave Clause, and it basically says the government needs to get state permission to use land outside of Washington, D.C. The Bundys claim even when they have that permission, the feds can only build things like forts and military dockyards. The problem with this interpretation is that it completely ignores the rest of the Constitution. There are other clauses in long-settled Supreme Court cases that say the government definitely can own land. We'll get into that later, but it's also important to know that the other ingredient here is sovereign citizen ideology. Sovereign citizens believe they are independent nations unto themselves. And when you're your own nation, you don't have to abide by the country's laws. Federal courts aren't valid. Federal judges aren't real judges. Things like taxes and grazing fees to federal agencies don't apply to you. Cliven and his son Ryan, they flirt with these ideas, saying they don't recognize the U.S. justice system. Still, Cliven spent two decades in court fighting over his interpretation of this clause few people have even heard of. All the while, his cattle grazed far, far beyond his property on public lands, which belonged to everyone. The cattle were grazing so far from the ranch that when BLM officials surveyed his cows, they found lots of them were feral. Some didn't even have a brand, meaning they were probably born wild. These fights over endangered species and land use have been going on for a long time. For two decades, Bundy fought about those things in court, and he just kept losing. By 2014, the government said Cliven had racked up more than a million dollars in fees. Bundy saw it differently. I would be happy to pay my grazing fees if I owed, owed grazing fees to the proper government. That brings us to the point of who does own this land. How does the federal government own 90% of the state of Nevada? I thought we were a sovereign state. I am the manager of this land because of my, my rights. The court says Cliven Bundy is trespassing on United States property. Just an aside, Cliven often refers to himself in the third person. And it's this idea of trespassing that really sets him off. Because as he was giving this interview in 2014, federal agents were indeed staffing up to take his cattle as payment for his backlog of fees. Who is the trespasser? Who is the one out here with, uh, like, 200 armed agency uh, surrounding my home and my ranch and part of parts of Clark County? 
Is Clive and Bunny doing those things, or is the United States government doing these things? That was his breaking point. He refused to give them the cows. And I have spent 20 years legally, politically, in the media, and now it's time to get on our, our boots and, I guess, make her stand. Though Bundy never publicly calls for an armed standoff, he implies that's his only option. You know, I haven't called no militia or anything like that, but hey, it looks like it's about, that's where we're at. By this point, it was April 2014, and the Bureau of Land Management was coming to get Cliven's cattle off the land once and for all. Meanwhile, people from across the country with all kinds of gripes with the government had picked up on the Bundy story through right-wing media. Many of them didn't know the first thing about raising livestock. They were just looking for a fight. Hi, this is Jim Jager for Tactical Response, and I'm, uh, I'm kind of mad right now. One of them is James Yeager. About a year earlier, a video he posted got a lot of attention. He was angry at the Obama administration over a proposed ban on assault rifles. To impose stricter gun control. Fuck that. It, I'm telling you that if that happens, it's going to spark a civil war, and I'll be glad to fire the first shot. I'm not letting anybody take my guns. If it goes one inch further, I'm going to start killing people. These are the type of people who start flocking to Bunkerville. Jaeger became one of Cliven's personal bodyguards. About five days after BLM agents showed up on Cliven's ranch, there was this really chaotic scene. There are protesters yelling at BLM agents. The agents have dogs. They're trying to let some trucks through the crowd when all hell breaks loose. One agent tosses an older woman on the ground. And then all of a sudden, Cliven's son Ammon speeds up on an ATV and stops it in front of the truck. He gets out, trades words with the agents. A dog snaps at him, and he kicks it. The agents tase him. He rips out the taser prongs and keeps yelling. That video goes viral, and it brings even more protesters to Bundy Ranch. It's helped along by this network of right-wing YouTubers and bloggers. They're inciting their followers, and in some cases telling them, bring even more guns to the desert. Again, I'm going to say it again. Anyone in the general vicinity, if you can get to Clark County, Nevada, and show some support for our U.S. Constitution, our sovereignty, and stand in the face of tyranny in this BLM. Now, sir, the pressure mounts on the government to avoid a potential shootout. But for other people, the fact that there could be a shootout, that gets them driving toward Nevada. Militias like the Three Percenters and the Oath Keepers assemble at the ranch. Two days after that video was shot, BLM agents corral Bundy's cows in a pen underneath Interstate 15, a few miles from the ranch. Cliven tells the crowd to go get the cows. People hop in their trucks and speed a couple of miles away toward the cattle. Another of Cliven's sons, Mel Bundy, is there on horseback, and he says, we're getting the cows back. Yeah, we're about the ones we didn't come for one or two. We're getting them all. What are they? All of a sudden, this handful of BLM agents holding the animals are surrounded. Up on the overpass, there are people pointing sniper rifles at them. A bunch of Cliven's sons, Ammon, Mel, Ryan, they're there too. They're telling the agents to let the cows go. And they do. Every person on the 
There's video showing a group of people riding horses, carrying the American flag, and herding Cliven's cattle back to the ranch. Ryan Bundy climbs a light pole and lifts his hat to the sky. The West has never been won! You might think the feds would bring charges in the days and weeks after the standoff. The Bundys had defied a court order and pointed guns at federal agents. But the government doesn't. They just leave. And the Bundys get what they wanted, not by court rulings or by compromising. They won by playing cowboy, bringing bigger and more guns to a shootout at the corral. It was like the Old West, but where the outlaws told everyone they were the heroes. And soon, in the desert of eastern Oregon, they'd try it again. But this time, the feds would be the ones pointing the weapons. Burns, Oregon is a rural sneeze-and-you'll-miss-it town in the remote southeastern part of the state. There's a grocery store, some restaurants, a motel or two. People who live there drive two hours to go to the mall, to Costco. Everybody knows everybody in Burns, and they notice when outsiders are in town. So when the Bundys appeared in late 2015, people took notice. They came because Ammon Bundy had taken an interest in a local ranching family. The Hammonds are a wonderful people. They are uh, salt of the earth. Um, He's talking about Dwight and Stephen Hammond, father and son ranchers who were convicted of setting fire to public lands in the early 2000s. Prosecutors tried to get them sent away for destroying government property, meaning the land, which carries a mandatory jail sentence of five years. But the judge said no. Combined, the Hammond served 15 months. Prosecutors weren't happy. They appealed the ruling and in January 2016 sent the Hammonds back to jail for the full five years. Hundreds of people in Burns were upset and held a march through town in support of the Hammonds. They saw the burn as an effort to protect their property from the wildfires that rage across the West each summer. The Fed said one of the fires was actually started to cover up an illegal deer hunt. Either way, Ammon Bundy saw a federal government persecuting a ranching family in order to take their land. Um, it's crucial that you understand what's going on here, what this issue is truly about. It's about our federal government taking over private properties adversely or using the taxpayers' dollars after they ruined the ranchers to buy it. It was part of a broader conspiracy, he said. Government run amok cabal of oppressors. And if they can get control of the land and resources, if they can control, for example, the water, then they can have full control over the people. To Ammon Bundy and his brother Ryan, the case was a chance to get control of the land back from the feds. It was an opportunity to take a seed of discontent over the Hammonds and nurture it. After the protest march in Burns, Ammon Bundy climbed a snowbank in the parking lot of the town's grocery store, and he started making a speech. Those that know what's going on here and have seen it for many, 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 many years, those who are ready to actually do something about it, I'm asking you to follow me and go to the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge, and we're going to make a hard stand. And that's what they do. Ammon Bundy and his brother Ryan pick up where their father Cliven had left off. If Bunkerville was Cliven's stage, 
Malheur is theirs. Under the cover of darkness, the Bundys marched a group of men to the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge, a federal bird sanctuary 30 miles from town. They broke into locked buildings that were closed for the winter, and they quickly started to tell the media their version of events. They claimed the refuge was unlocked, and they waltzed right in. They said they had more than 150 armed men ready to defend the refuge if law enforcement came. In reality, they only had a couple dozen at most. But within a few days, the militias showed up again. People from out of state flooded the wildlife refuge and dug in. The band was back together. It was Bunkerville in the snow. The Bundys dared the federal government to try to stop them. They held daily press conferences to talk about how the government can't own land. But there were differences from the standoff in Nevada two years earlier. Many townspeople didn't buy the Bundy story this time. They posted signs across Burns that said, Militia, go home. They held meetings asking the sheriff to turn off the power to the refuge and let the Bundys freeze. When the occupiers called for supplies, people from around the world sent boxes of sex toys. Uh, this one was really funny, a bag of dicks. Um, they called them Y'all Qaeda on social media. Vanilla ISIS. They spend and waste their money on all this hateful stuff to send out here to us. But the biggest difference between Oregon and Nevada is that this time, shots are fired. It happens on a remote Oregon highway 26 days after the occupation started. An informant tips off the feds that the Bundys and other leaders of the takeover are driving in two cars to a nearby town. They plan to hold a meeting in the next county over and see the sheriff, who supported their cause. But on the way, federal and state law enforcement sets up roadblocks. Ammon Bundy gives up immediately. He gets out, hands up, as Oregon State Police close in. But the people in the other truck don't give up. Occupation spokesman Robert Lavoy Finnicum is behind the wheel. He was once a model rancher who paid his grazing fees to the federal government. He was also a devout Mormon and helped raise dozens of foster children at his ranch. But he went to Bunkerville in 2014 and was radicalized. I'm going to meet the sheriff. The sheriff is waiting for us. So you do as you damn well please. But I'm not going anywhere. Here I am, right there. You back down or you kill me now. Go ahead, put the bullet through me. What you're hearing is a video taken from inside Finnicum's truck during that stop. Inside the truck with Finnicum was Ryan Bundy, an 18-year-old girl named Victoria Sharp, and the person shooting the video, Shauna Cox. Depending on who you ask, what happens next is either an assassination attempt or a justified police shooting. No service here at we should all. never have stopped. We should yeah. never have stopped. Ryan Bundy says they shouldn't have stopped. Lasers from rifles flash inside the truck. Officers shout to get out. It doesn't take long before Finnicum hits a breaking point. I'm going to go. You guys ready? Okay, get, get down. Then you duck down. down. He steps on the gas. He barrels around the curved road, and when he gets to the roadblock, he swerves at the last minute. The vehicle narrowly misses an FBI agent. The truck crashes in the snow. And before the truck is fully stopped, Finnicum leaps out. 
someone fires two shots that hit the truck. He stumbles through knee-deep snow. He keeps shouting. His hands are up at first. Then he reaches for his jacket pocket. Inside is a loaded handgun. He puts his hands up again, and he reaches. Hands up. Reach. Finally, police do shoot him. He never managed to grab the gun. Did I shoot him? You asshole. Oh, shit. Did they kill him? You got two damn lax. Yeah. Damn, why do they keep shooting? I'm trying to take my head off. I know, but all of us? Stop! Please! Stop! That's ridiculous. Because you're stupid. (laughs) Police were shooting balls of pepper spray. Lavoie was bleeding out in a snowbank on the side of the road. Law enforcement had been trying hard to avoid a shootout. They waited 26 days for the Bundys to leave the compound, and their roadblock was on an isolated road where the Bundys couldn't call for backup. Within days, a memorial popped up where Lavoie had died, and the Bundy crew were talking about it like an assassination. It was the ultimate example of a tyrannical government. Ammon and Ryan Bundy were arrested at the roadblock and went to jail in Oregon. Clive and Bundy was arrested days later as he got off a flight in Portland. He was coming to help his sons. Instead, he was indicted on a litany of charges stemming from the Bunkerville standoff in Nevada. Prosecutors had been waiting two years to spring this trap. It wasn't looking good for the Bundys. The Malheur occupation had led to a man's death, and they were about to have to argue in front of a federal judge that the standoffs were justified because the federal government couldn't own state land. But then, in court, things did not go as expected. The Bundys' legal fight took years to play out across Oregon and Nevada, and I was there for most of it in both states. Don't worry, I'll spare you the monotony of actually sitting through a federal trial. It's not nearly as exciting as the movies make it out to be. Still, the trials are when I really started to understand the power of the Bundy's belief in their own story. For years, they talked about fighting for freedom in some of America's wildest places, places few people in this country have been to. And then, For two months in Oregon in 2016, and a month in Nevada in late 2017, the Bundys were forced to argue their case in the urban areas they despised, Las Vegas and Portland. Liberal enclaves the Bundys said were ruining the lives of rural Americans. It's worth talking for a second about the Las Vegas federal courthouse itself. It's set far back from a long palm tree lined road. To reach its front doors, you've got to walk across this massive concrete plaza. Later, I found out that's because this is the first building to comply with blast-resistant codes put in place after the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing. That was the work of an anti-government extremist named Timothy McVeigh, and it left 168 people dead. Many of them were kids. The Bundys, too, have been labeled as anti-government extremists. People have called the Oregon occupation domestic terrorism. 
And within their ranks of followers, you will find people who agree with what Timothy McVeigh did back in 1995. One Bundy supporter, a guy named Gary Hunt, talks about McVeigh like this. He's the first one to actually take an active action against the United States government. It was a government building. And in that respect, he is the first patriot of the second American Revolution. Not that I agree with it, but uh, from an objective observation, I, I give him credit for doing what other people had talked about. McVeigh murdered 168 people, 19 of them kids. And some people within this movement see him as something of a hero. I think about that when I'm standing in this long line of people waiting to get into the courtroom. At both trials, in Oregon and Nevada, there were Homeland Security officers with dogs walking around looking for threats. Before they walk through the metal detectors, all of these Bundy supporters huddle together in a circle, take off their hats, and pray. And then I wonder why it is I'm afraid of them. Because the government is telling me to be, or because they're actually violent? Once I make my way into the courtrooms and the trial starts, I'm surprised. I thought the Bundys would flounder in the city. Instead, they thrive. In downtown Las Vegas, the Bundys come alive with the atmosphere. From the lobby outside the courtroom, a neon cowboy flickers on the corner of Fremont Street. He's in the saddle atop a giant rearing bronco. The family seems like they feel right at home in Vegas. They revel in having an audience. On the first day of the trial, Ryan Bundy pulls up to the courthouse in a white stretch limo. During the trial in Portland, riders on horseback gallop down busy city streets. A tailgate party with hot dogs and burgers fills the sidewalk. They create a circus everywhere they go, even in court. As the trial starts, prosecutors and the Bundys only agree on a few things. First, what happened at Bundy Ranch was important. Second, Clive and Bundy owes a lot of grazing fees. They just disagree on who he owes them to. Third, Cliven's sons Ammon and Ryan brought armed men to Oregon two years later to take over the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. But was it a protest or an armed occupation? Beyond those points, it was like I was watching the national debate over alternative facts and fake news play out in a courtroom. First in Oregon and then in Nevada, Attorneys for the government would tell the jury these cases were simple. They described the Bundys as a menace. They said Cliven and his sons trespassed on federal land, stole from the American people, used intimidation to stop federal workers from doing their jobs. It was all there in the evidence, they said. We have Ammon and the others on video. And they did. We have uh, basically taken over the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge, and we're planning on staying here for several years. Prosecutors talked about the main charge in both cases, this idea of the Bundys and their followers conspiring to impede federal officers from doing their jobs. They showed a lot of maps. They talked about things most urbanites probably don't care much about, grazing permits, water rights. For a whole day, the FBI described how they picked up evidence at the refuge, how they put it in baggies and sent it to lab technicians. Then the technicians would log it and Ugh, why did I come to court today? In Nevada, the jurors looked bored. In the front row, I watched this one woman nod off. And not just for a second. The judge's clerk had to nudge her awake. She giggled to herself. 
The prosecution had presented its case as if the details were going to be picked apart by other lawyers. But they weren't up against lawyers. Ryan Bundy was acting as his own attorney. And when he stood up to present his case, he painted a very compelling picture about life out West. He talked about him and his brothers as children wading in the waters of the Virgin River, sunrises, moonrises, chasing frogs, hunting rabbits, running across the desert with dogs at their heels. Ryan talked about a family living in an unforgiving land, finding beauty and solace among the desert shadows, finding life in a place where so many things can't survive. And then he talked about jackbooted agents, armed for war, federal snipers surrounding the Nevada ranch. Cliven Bundy said the FBI mounted cameras to record his every move. It was a story about a terrified family, cornered and needing to defend its way of life. For his side of things, the woman in the jury box was wide awake. Start by saying I, I certainly did not see this result coming. I think it, it's a t- Kevin Sally is a Portland-based defense attorney who watched the Oregon trial play out in 2016. He says prosecutors had to decide how to deal with the Bundy version of events. Um, one of the choices you always have to make as sort of a lawyer when you're when you're facing kind of a counterargument is how how much do you want to kind of engage and thereby sort of dignify that argument as opposed to sort of dismissing it. And Oregon prosecutors didn't engage the Bundy version of the story. Even after Ammon talked for days in court about the Constitution, about how he believes it's illegal for the federal government to own land, a belief legal scholars laugh at. Prosecutors didn't touch it. Yes, I mean, I may well have done the same thing, because if you, if you think that your opponent's argument is just really, really weak, then you're arguably doing a disservice to your case by kind of you know, bringing it up and elevating it and discussing it. So they hid it away. They didn't want to talk about the Bundy's disproven views on the Constitution or how many years they'd been working the land. Ammon Bundy sat on the stand for three days talking, telling jurors his family's way of life was under attack. And when it came time for the prosecutors to cross-examine him, they questioned him for less than 15 minutes. In Nevada, prosecutors hid away other things, too. They didn't tell defense attorneys that Cliven was right about guys with guns camping out near his property. And his family was being recorded. At one point, FBI agents disguised as a film crew actually infiltrated the Bundy family home. All of these government missteps, the dismissive tones, the evidence they hid because they said it was irrelevant, it all came across as arrogant. You could hear in the prosecutors' voices that they felt like they had a slam-dunk case. They were right, the Bundys were not, and that couldn't be clearer. In the end, Sally says, that seemed to be the government's downfall. But the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, it also, to some degree, kind of presupposes the answer to what a lot of this case was about, in at least some people's minds, which is, you know, do citizens kind of have a right to object and disagree with um, what the government does with land that it considers to be its own? Here's how one Oregon juror, who asked to remain anonymous, phrased the defense's message. This, this case is about the death of rural America, and that has got me thinking, if, if your farmers don't have the ability necessarily to prosper in those venues in which they're going to raise, whether it's logging or animal stuff, it's it just got me thinking a lot about that. That message about the death of rural America, it worked. 
At Malheur, there were armed men patrolling a government facility. They took their guns up a fire tower and dug battle trenches in case the FBI tried to come in. But in court, the fact that all those things are illegal, that didn't matter. The Bundys won. In Oregon, Ammon and Ryan Bundy were acquitted by a jury. In Nevada, the case never even got to the jury. The judge declared a mistrial because prosecutors withheld evidence from the defense, evidence that actually might have made the Bundys look good in the eyes of the jury. Like how it really was surveilling the Bundys. And prosecutors didn't mention that FBI threat assessments determined the Bundys themselves were unlikely to be violent. I came into the trial skeptical of the Bundy worldview. But after listening to expert after expert explain why Cliven and his sons were wrong in their actions, wrong for their beliefs, I can tell you, at times it's tough to tell which side of the courtroom is actually telling the truth about what the family did. Because the truth about this family, about the movement they've sparked, just isn't that simple. It's, it's a steak. That's what's for dinner. That's where I'm headed. <laughs> and God blessed America today. After having been arrested two years earlier, Cliven Bundy walked out of jail in the first days of 2018. His cowboy hat was back on his head, his legs free of shackles. He raised a fist in victory. We never had a standoff with the federal government. We had a, a protest of our county sheriff. Even the question of whether it was a standoff was still up for debate. Everything was in Bundy's eyes. And I have no contract with the federal government. This court has no jurisdiction over this matter. When since does the federal government have a, supposed to have an army that comes against we the people? He called out, as he had in 2014, for people to stand up to the government. It happened on Bundy Ranch. They stuck their guns down our throats. And that Within days of getting out of jail, Cliven was on the steps of the sheriff's office on a loudspeaker, making demands, just as he had done in 2014. That's when I realized the Bundy's story is hardly over. We're not done with this. If the federal government comes out after us again, we will definitely tell them the truth. The truth. After the trials, it felt like the truth was even more difficult to figure out. People traveled from around the country to see the Nevada trial. Journalists, critics, Bundy sympathizers, environmentalists. They came to see the wheels of justice churn out long-desired answers about what this has all meant. To understand what the Bundy's actions mean about the future of protest, about the future of the American West. To say something definitive about the movement the family tapped into three years ago. But a mistrial doesn't settle any of those questions. So when people say that even talking about the Bundys plays into their hand, that everyone should just pretend they don't exist if they want them to go away, that ignores the fact that they essentially won. If the Bundys had lost in court, their occupations would be a footnote to the fight over public lands in the West. Their story would be about a fringe uprising that fizzled out. But because of the government's missteps and the Bundy's court victory, their views on who owns the West have been legitimized, at least in the eyes of their followers. So if you want to know what the fight over public lands in the West is going to look like going forward, you have to understand the Bundys, how they think, and how that thinking seduces the people around them. To understand the Bundys, 
You have to trace their long and twisted family tree, dissect the religious undertones in everything they do, and untangle the motives of politicians trying to undermine the federal government. It's a story of white supremacists, nuclear weapons, and a little-known book that explains the fringe religious beliefs behind Cliven Bundy's whole movement. Next time on Bundyville, I dig into Cliven's past and I find some answers. This episode was written by me, Leah Satilli, Peter Frick Wright, and Ryan Haas. Music by Robbie Carver. This series is produced by Peter and Robbie from 30 Minutes West Productions. We had editorial oversight from Anna Griffin and Mike Dang, fact-checking by Matt Giles, and research help from Kim Frieda. Bundyville is a co-production of Long Reads and Oregon Public Broadcasting. If you like this show, please share it or leave us a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help more people find it. And please check out my four-part series at longreads.com.